You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Thanks so much for joining us. Another busy week in uh, North Carolina politics. You know, you'd like to think that August would be a not-so-busy month, uh, what with most people being on vacation or getting ready to send the kids back to school, but it doesn't seem that way for us as the uh, presidential and other campaigns continue to heat up and uh, the, uh, the courts continue to give us a long list of, of rulings of different sorts. So uh, we're going to talk about some of the uh, campaign ads in our second segment, uh, along with some other developments uh, that sort of dovetail into the the governor's race with uh, coal ash issues and some uh, state employees who are on their way out the door, frustrated how things are going um, in terms of uh, regulations. Uh, but we're going to start out talking about the, uh, the big ruling of the week, which was the uh, court throwing out the uh, legislative districts that were drawn several years back and uh, accused of uh, gerrymandering to favor Republicans. Uh, Lynn Bonner from the NNO uh, was covering that. Lynn, tell us a little about the uh, ruling and, and what's going to happen next. Yeah, I guess instead of headliner of the week, we can, ha- we can have ruling of the week. Um, it's uh, It was another redistricting uh, opinion. This time a uh, panel of three federal judges said that uh, 28 legislative districts, a mix of House and Senate districts, were unconstitutional racial gerrymanders. Um, they said that the way that the legislature went about forming what they called um, VRA districts or a majority black districts was just all wrong, and they should not have – it was clear that they improperly used um, – race as a predominant factor in creating those districts when they should not have. So the upshot is they say that um, the legislature has to uh, redraw districts for the 2018 election, um, but the 16 election can continue under these districts. Um, You know, Republicans obviously aren't happy with the opinion. spoke to Davis, David Lewis today, who is the chief uh, redistricting uh, point person in the House, and it sounded like they were going to appeal, but he said, well, no, well, we haven't made a, we haven't come to a decision yet. But again, he said he looked forward to having the uh, the U.S. Supreme Court look at it. So, um, so redistricting rolls on, uh, uh, more um, opinions from the courts that uh, the legislature is just doing it the wrong way. Yeah, because I guess this was sort of uh, not unexpected after the congressional districts were thrown out. Although in that case, uh, because the ruling happened earlier, we ended up uh, going back into a special session, redrawing the districts, doing the primaries over again. In this case, uh, I guess the mentality was uh, that it's too late to do that, so we're just going to move ahead this year. We're just going to roll on. This um, this fi- this lawsuit was filed after um, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in an Alabama case that went over some of the same issues about drawing districts. And, um, you know, the plaintiffs looked at the districts here and said, you know, this is applicable to, to what hap- what's going on in Alabama, so we're going to file and see what happens. And, and, um, and they, uh, they got the opinion that, uh, that they were looking for. 
Yeah, so any chance of uh, further uh, action from the plaintiffs in terms of uh, maybe moving up the – I heard some talk yesterday of like a, the idea of a potential there 2017 special election. There was talk about that. When I spoke to uh, the lawyer, she said – Anita Earl – she said, well, um, they're still deciding what kind of uh, – what remedy they may ask for. It's possible that they could ask for um, – a shortened election schedule so that they wouldn't have to wait until 18 to run to have people run out of the new districts. They could ask for 17. Whether that actually happens or not, who knows, but it would be certainly add an interesting wrinkle to an already uh, very uh, wrinkly um, uh, election schedule. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the uh, power dynamics switch out over this. It feels like with the congressional districts, I mean, there are not that many congressional districts that you have to redraw. There are only 13 of them. So they managed to make it work so the partisan balance is largely going to be the same. With the legislative districts, I guess there were so many of them that uh, they ruled unconstitutional. It'll be interesting to see if they can get the same partisan power balance out of whatever they do to redraw them that they did uh, with the congressionals. Yeah, I think it would be really unlikely that they get the same split in the House just because there are so many districts. And there are a lot of the districts that were, um, that look really uh, interesting. So, um, yeah, it would be hard to maintain um, the partisan balance that they that Republicans would desire in the House for sure. Yeah, and you wrote another story today about the uh, the folks behind uh, the redistricting maps. Yeah, uh, tell us a little guy that most people have the, never heard yeah, of. Yeah, the favorite the favorite man behind the curtain. I, I talked about uh, Tom Hoffler a couple months ago. Um, I guess he is, was one of our former headliners of the week um, because he is uh, the guy who really drew the maps. Um, and the uh, opinion, uh, the court opinion really detailed a lot of the behind the scenes of drawing of legislative maps. And um, it looks like the redistricting committee with all of its members uh, didn't have a whole lot to do with it, as in maybe nothing. Um, because it was pretty clear that um, uh, the redistricting chairs, Lewis and Rucho, were telling Hoffler what to do, what criteria to use. And, um, you know, there were public hearings and redistricting meetings and everything else. But Hoffler never went to any of the meetings and he didn't read the transcripts. And it was just basically uh, Lewis and Rucho telling Hoffler, okay, here's what, here's what the criteria are. Here's what we want you to do. So, um, yeah, it, uh, it, it's certainly enlightening. Yeah, and I guess he was involved in the, the redrawn congressional maps, so he may be invited back to the state come next year when it's time to exactly. redo the legislatives. And, and maybe, you know, Democrats will again say, hey, can we talk to Ho Tom Hoffler? And I'll bet the answer will be no. <laughs> yep. The man that no one gets to hear from or see, uh, Tom Hoffler. Un un unless uh, it's in, in court. I guess he testifies. So yeah. I guess if we travel out to, to a hearing, we'll, we'll get to see him. Yeah, it requires a subpoena to, to get him out of uh, where, wherever he works out of. Uh, well, I'll jump forward to uh, Will Doran, who sort of had a sort of, uh, I guess, well-timed fact check this week. Um, you had a fact check on uh, gerrymandering issues uh, that was published slightly before this ruling yeah, came out. Yeah, I don't want to claim that I had advanced word from the Court of Appeals that this was coming down. I'll, you know, I'll let that remain a mystery. Um, but just two <laughs> days before the ruling came out, yeah, we, uh, we did a fact check into um, a statement from Common Cause, who is often in the, in the thick of things whenever 
congressional districts at the state or federal level are being challenged. Um, and they had said uh, that at the state level, uh, these districts that just got you know overturned, um, that half of all of our state legislators, House and Senate, were running unopposed, and they blamed it specifically on gerrymandering. Um, so we gave that the PolitiFact treatment, looked at it, and uh, decided that was mostly true. Um, uh, basically, it's two parts. It wasn't exactly half, but it was it was over forty percent. It was uh, seventy out of the 120 um, that were unopposed and uh, even uh, there were a few others that uh, had, you know, uh, one uh, of our two party candidates and then one libertarian. So some people would argue those are technically unopposed, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's a couple, I guess we, we, there was one, one or two in Raleigh where there's a Democrat running against a libertarian. So yeah. I, and I don't know if the libertarian will get to pick up a lot of uh, Republican votes that otherwise wouldn't have somebody to cast their ballot for. Right. But. Yeah. We, we didn't want to be mean, so we didn't count those as uncontested because, um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, technically something could happen. But, um, yeah, so the, the numbers were, were almost accurate. And then uh, basically we talked to, su- to some political experts who said that gerrymandering is probably not the root cause of all of those uncontested districts, that even in a perfect, uh, perfectly apportioned system, you would still have some unopposed seats just because, you know, incumbents have such great advantages through fundraising, name recognition, et cetera. Um, but they said that uh, gerrymandering does play an outsized role in how many seats are open. So because they were they were mostly right about the effect that gerrymandering has, you know, mostly right about the numbers, leaving out a little bit of context, uh, we gave them a, a mostly true, and I guess it appears that the court agreed. Yeah. <laughs> court of uh, PolitiFact versus and the uh, Court of uh, Appeals, I guess, on the same same uh, token a little bit. Yeah, with that. I don't. I don't think the Court of Appeals cited uh, my PolitiFact article, but uh, I haven't gone back and read through all the footnotes. So. Yeah, we'll need, we'll need to check the footnotes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's where we often see our names as journalists pop up sometimes in court rulings. Like, oh look, I'm on page 57 of this you know, important ruling. Someone read my article or whatever. They cited the Daily Show, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Daily Show was cited and. Not you know not that that's necessarily uh, journalism, but yeah, uh, <laughs> PolitiFact I'd say is a little higher bar than Daily Show, although pr- perhaps a little bit more entertaining at times. Well, yeah, we try and be funny, but it yeah. often uh, you know not quite to the John Stewart Trevor Noah level. Yeah. Oh, and and uh, the Daily Show was not in this opinion, but was in an opinion on uh, voter ID. Yeah, it was a voter ID case that cited the guy that went on the Daily Show and made some colorful comments. Yeah, my my apologies, I didn't mean to t- impugn the the serious uh, uh, you know. Integrity of PolitiFact, North Carolina. <laughs> well, lastly, I just wanted to note, uh, sort of previewing a story I've got coming out in, in Sunday's paper, that uh, you know, despite all the talk of gerrymandering, there are some uh, well-contested legislative races this year that will, will continue to march on uh, without being thrown out and, and rescheduled as a separate election. And a lot of them are uh, here in Wake County, uh, where there's a, a number of Republican-held seats that uh, have, over the last couple cycles, uh, drawn some, some pretty fierce competition. The, the result is not a whole lot of turnover, but um, certainly makes for, for interesting elections and we'll jump into that as well as uh, a couple of races that were close uh, two years ago that uh, based on the fundraising numbers we've seen from the uh, opposing candidates that the 
uh, opposing parties, both the Republicans and Democrats, don't seem to be putting a whole lot of resources in, those being the uh, the John Alexander Senate seat, which was a uh, kind of a nail-biter with a, a Democrat last year, doesn't uh, isn't getting a whole lot of attention uh, this year. And the same goes for uh, Representative Gail Adcock's seat out in Cary, uh, where she uh, sort of pulled off an upset over a Republican two years ago, uh, now is not facing much uh, strong opposition from her uh, Republican opponent. So we'll have to see where that goes. Contrarily, the um, the Beringer seat is uh, getting a lot of attention. Um, so maybe that's where a lot of the firepower is, is and a lot of the attention is, is being directed this time. Yeah, she's got a pretty uh, well-funded opponent, Susan Evans, uh, from the Wake County Wake School Board. Board. Um, and I don't think Beringer has had that uh, strong of an opposition for the last couple cycles. No, she she didn't uh, she didn't last time, and I don't think the time before, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that, that that's an interesting one. Yeah, and it's one where it's hard to you know. In doing the story, I've been trying to pull the the 2014 election percentages just to sort of see how close stuff is. But it's a little bit hard to tell because sometimes when you have a candidate who's you know in a sense not trying, you can't really. Uh, compare apples to apples in how the percentages turn out if they've got a, a really well-funded, active, well-known challenger this year versus running against, you know, somebody who no one's ever heard of and yeah. doesn't have much money. I, we can definitely say this year that Evans is trying. Um, she's uh, had some um, fundraisers that have drawn some some attention with some, um, some named hosts. So uh, we'll see. Yeah, for sure. I would also say, though, that Berenger is part of the inner circle in the Senate. She's really kind of got a comfortable spot there uh, working on some of the, you know, economic uh, tax kinds of stuff. I mean, she's so I would assume she'd get a fair amount of financial backing from Berger, wouldn't she? Yeah, and you're, you're seeing a lot of that for uh, in advertising for the, the Senate Republican candidates, which is a, some, uh, a sidebar to the, the story I'm writing that, that Lynn was working on this week. So look for that Sunday to figure out who's behind these uh, these ads that you might have been seeing during the Olympics that uh, tout some of the, the Senate Republicans and, and their role in uh, teacher raises this year. So look for that. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk about uh, some campaign ads, uh, which is sort of dovetails with this segment a little bit um, and some other developments this week. So stay with us. My great-grandparents came to North Carolina with nothing, but through hard work, they helped make the old North State what it is today, a land of opportunity, one that continues to attract those in search of a better life. It's natural to be wary of newcomers, but North Carolinians have a tradition of hospitality. It's how we show new neighbors what it means to be a Tar Heel. Immigrants, no matter where they came from, bring a lot to North Carolina, and North Carolina brings a lot to them. To learn how new families are making this state stronger, visit unitingnc.org. And welcome back to this week's edition of Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the News and Observer. Uh, we're going to talk now about some uh, developments in the uh, coal ash regulatory world. The saga continues uh, with uh, the uh, toxicologist Ken Rudo and, and others uh, in the uh, Department of Environmental Quality. Craig's been covering all that. Craig, tell us a little about the, uh, the developments this week. What's new? Well, it really has kind of gotten messier and it's kind of uh, blossomed into more of a controversy, <clears throat> more of a, of a problem for the governor, I think. Uh, we had Ken Rudo, the state toxicologist was one of many people one scientists who testified that they had concerns about uh, rescinding do not drink notices to people who live near coal ash ponds and have private wells um, 
uh, he last week or in his testimony kind of delivered it all the issue at the governor's doorstep by saying the governor's office had summoned him to discuss their concerns. That got the that got the McCorian administration to kind of wheel on Rudo real quickly and sort of discredit him, say he uh, you know he was just acting on his own, this lone wolf, um, and just kind of working on his own. Well, that prompted really kind of surprisingly one of his uh, bosses, Dr. Megan Davies, the state epidemiologist, to uh, resign, and she said that. Basically, the, what they were doing was maligning the entire public health system. They, uh, they were in her letter of rec- resignation. She said their the administration was misleading the public, and she could no longer uh, work there. I talked to her yesterday on the phone. She kind of picked up that theme and said this whole this whole uh, attack on Ruto undermines public confidence in uh, in public health. Like you know, if you're if you think that these you know, you get a order, a quarantine order, or, or a do not drink order, or something, say a Zika outbreak or something. And if you think it's just some nut bureaucrat up in Raleigh coming up with this stuff on his own, then you're going to be less likely to take it seriously. And she said she thinks that's a real, a real threat, a real concern. So that's where we are now. It's just kind of expanded it's, uh, into much more of a political story than it probably was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. So what's McCrory saying all this? Is he. Uh, does this raise an alarm bell for him at a certain point once more of the people involved in, in regulations yeah. jump on board with this? I think it does, and I think he recognized that. Last week when they uh, went on the offensive against Rudo, that I think you could argue it backfired in some ways. This week what uh, the governor had to say about Megan Davies is she's a good person, we respect her, we just disagree with her, and she's, he was really kind of soft-pedaling that uh, perhaps seeing that that was not a good tactic. Yeah, there's no 9.30 p.m. press conference <laughs> no, this, this week uh, no. about her departure. Right. Um, so, you know, and in a way it is just about disagreements among scientists, although I'm not sure which scientist the governor the governor is listening to because the, the state scientists were saying pretty clearly they had concerns about this. Yeah, so is this going to end up at an election issue? Does this sort of feed in again to that? whole coal ash yeah. narrative that's out there yeah yeah i keep <clears throat> thinking of when the when the dan river spill first happened there was uh, one of the environmental groups put out a tv ad with the governor's hands supposedly covered with uh, coal ash and they didn't think that was very funny in the governor's office and but that's kind of been the theme ever since and i remember the governor objected at the time saying well, like they're practically saying i'm out there with a shovel you know digging a hole in the coal ash ponds uh you know as a joke but uh yeah, it's it's just dogged him this whole way. The the image of him and his former employer uh, of a very long time, Duke Energy. Uh, it just the, the Dan River spill unleashed a cascade of events that have uh, continued to pursue him, kind of dog him. I mean, all along the way. Yeah, and I guess his point is that he's trying to get all the information out there to affected people. But is there a sense that? You can, uh, I mean, are the documents and, and studies that have been done? Uh, is there a way to release those to the people who are affected by this drinking water that they can actually understand, or you know, would it really have to be a ruling by somebody at the state, whether it's Ruto or somebody with a different opinion? That yeah, it gets confusing. It's, as I understand it, it's hard for them just to do individual risk assessments, although they do that. But it, it's it's more they there's so many of there's like 400 people involved. They've got to kind of have a more general warning and. It's very complicated. It's very confusing, and you start talking about the science of it all, and it's hard to sort out who's right or who's wrong. Um, 
you know, it's, as Megan Davis told me, there's it gets to a, more of a policy question than a science question at one point. Like if you have a risk of getting cancer, if it's a, of like one in 500, that's pretty bad. You, everybody knows you want to deal with that. One in a thousand, sure. You know, one in a million. At that point, you start thinking, well, I, you know, what are people comfortable with? This is a, a policy question, not so much a question that science can answer. Right now, we're talking about very low levels. It's just the people are worried about about that uh, and then you have flint michigan in the background people are ju- there's just heightened awareness of of water and uh you know trusting your regulators yeah that's the challenge is it, you know how to parse through this information and what what really constitutes a risk i know where I, I live i'm on a communal well system so every year i get this report in the mail from i assume it's required by the state that they send this out with mm-hmm. the well testing results yeah. and i look at it and i'm like well i think this means my water's good, but I don't really know for sure. And I figure, you know, if you you send out that kind of stuff, it it is really hard for people to tell, like, you know, what what should I do? Do I really have a problem here? Or is this just... And what the governor wanted to do was, along with these notices last year that were sent out, do not drink, send a, include a sentence or two that says, these wells uh, meet federal safe drinking water standards. But the problem the scientists had was that, is that it's, it's, contradictory they weren't comfortable their their own numbers found uh, there's a big gap you know the, the feds are saying it's like okay up to 100 parts per billion is that right yeah billion or million I think so. I yeah billion maybe it sounds right yeah billion thanks lynn the scientist <laughs> um but the but what uh, ken rudo came up with was 0.07 parts per billion which is a health screening level that's different than the EPA standard, which has been through the hearing process. Uh, the, the health screening level is more of a informal thing, but it's based on uh, it's based on state law, and it really all stems from the Coal Ash Management Act from 2014, which said that the regulators you've got to go out and make some comparisons, checking for these uh, these uh, compounds, hexavalent chromium and vanadium which makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about, but, um, and kind of compare those to what you're finding in the wells uh, and, and apply groundwater standards that are already in effect. So that's how they arrived at this much more stringent um, level. So, you know, it's, it's just a big political and kind of a public policy mess. But your pronunciations are beautiful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will uh, get more into that probably next week because I feel like that issue is uh, is not going to stop. Thanks, Craig, for that. Uh, we also want to talk a little about the uh, campaign trail this week. Um, we uh, had another pair of visits from uh, from Donald Trump himself uh, in, in Wilmington and Fayetteville, uh, most notably uh, the Fayette, uh, Wilmington rally, I believe, where uh, he, he made the comment about uh, Second Amendment people, which if you've been following any sort of national newscast, you've probably already heard way too much about that, but uh, certainly been interesting to watch the uh, local uh, fallout from that, uh, the degree to which uh, different politicians that uh, have backed uh, Donald Trump's campaign have, have been willing to jump on that or not. We had Richard Burr this week saying he was surprised by the comment and that he felt like Trump should be focusing on other issues. Uh, and then we had uh, Governor Pat McCrory and Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest who said they basically saw no problem with it, that uh, they supported Trump's interpretation that it was about voting and not about going out and, and shooting somebody. Um, so it's been coming more of a campaign issue, I think, on, on some level of uh, to what degree do people back the things that uh, Donald Trump is saying, but uh, plenty of that online. 
uh, we had a lot of uh, campaign ads coming out um, this week, and uh, one of them in the uh, presidential race. Will, you fact-checked um, this uh, ad that the National Rifle Association came out with. Tell us a little about that. Yes. Um, speaking of Second Amendment people, uh, per Donald Trump, I've had some interactions with them today after the fact-check. Um, none violent. Um, some disagreed with the fact check, but we looked at this NRA ad. They accepted that when the ruling happened, there was nothing they could do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and this is a to, to back up for a second. The uh, the NRA the day after uh, Donald Trump's Second Amendment people comment uh, announced a three million dollar ad buy here in North Carolina, um, saying that it was one of four key states that they're running this ad in um, that basically. Uh, attacks Hillary Clinton's uh, uh, basically kind of elitist hypocrisy, as I believe the NRA uh, put it, and also uh, her stance on guns, and says that she does not believe in your right to keep a gun at home for self-defense. So we looked into that, and um, the NRA actually cited a recording of Clinton talking about a uh, landmark Supreme Court case from 2008 called uh, District of Columbia v. Heller. And she says that she disagrees with the court's ruling in Heller. And so that has kind of been the standard that a lot of uh, Second Amendment advocates have picked up to say that, like this ad says, that uh, Clinton is against, uh, you know, individual ownership of guns, keeping them at home for self-defense, et cetera. Um, But if you actually listen to the entire recording and not just the one sentence, she's talking about... Uh, a hypothetical situation of a person carrying a machine gun in a supermarket, which is kind of the opposite of keeping a gun at home for self-defense. And digging into this a little further, I found actually an amicus brief uh, that uh, the George W. Bush administration had written in which they cite those exact same concerns, that the Heller case uh, could possibly lift some of the restrictions in the National Firearms Act, which uh, regulate people being able to purchase machine guns and could also uh, lift some of the government's ability to restrict uh, carrying weapons in public. So um, as I wrote in the article, uh, liberals might not like to hear it and conservatives might not like to hear it. I don't think anyone would be happy, but uh, basically uh, Clinton's position on this is very similar to what the, the Bush administration had said. Um, so because the statements were taking, taken very out of context and, you know, she was talking about a very specific granular part of the ruling, not, you know, that she doesn't believe in the Second Amendment, um, that the ad was false. Okay, so and you <laughs> went fully in the false camp We on went that. fully in the false. We did, not, we did not give it a pants on fire. We didn't think that it was ridiculous um, because Clinton certainly has been tepid on the Second Amendment at times and... You know, she's she said some things that have concerned people about gun buyback programs and things like that. So we didn't think it was a ridiculous claim to make, um, but there there's not really any truth to it. So didn't didn't earn the pants on fire, but it got the false. Yeah. Well, there's still a few months left in the election season if you want to get, get yes. out there for your pants on fire. And we're going to have quite a lot of ads. Um, I actually saw today a reporter from The Hill, which is a national publication, um, sent out a tweet um, with uh, numbers for political ad spending just this week in North Carolina. Um, And obviously it's the Olympics. Lots of people are watching TV. Um, But just in this week, Hillary Clinton's team has spent $350,000 in North Carolina. 
and two Democratic super PACs or PACs or advocacy groups, something, have spent about $900,000. So that's $1.2 million uh, in the Democratic presidential race. And then the NRA, uh, with this new ad that I fact check, and another conservative group have spent about three or four hundred thousand dollars. So Meanwhile, got, we've got nothing from the Trump campaign directly, right? I zero, mean, obviously, an uh, NRA thing against Hillary is going to benefit Trump. Literally but. zero dollars spent on ads from the Trump campaign, um, and like you know, and about you know, almost a million more total Democrat versus Republican, and you know it. Obviously, uh, as the NRA themselves said, North Carolina is a key battleground state, and you know we're going to see. Uh, the effects of these ads probably trickling down to other races down the ballot. We saw the poll today, uh, you know, that said Deborah Ross was leading Richard Burr in the polls for the first time, which I think surprised a lot of people. Yeah, and that's just a race that really hasn't gotten into ads yet, but I know we're going to get a lot of them, particularly the right. more that race is considered yeah, to be a toss-up. I don't think I've seen a single ad on that, but I think it's just kind of the 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 trickle-down economics, if you will, of the the, the presidential race that's, you know, kind of... Uh, yeah, and certainly with the, the Hillary Clinton lead that was in that poll today of, I think, like nine points, uh, Trump is going to need to spend money on ads here in order to try to get those numbers up because, uh, as I reported last week, it's a must-win state. He's He's got yes. very few paths to victory if he can't take North Carolina, so uh, that's why he was here this week. That's probably why he'll be here in the coming weeks. Uh, I don't think there's a appearance scheduled next week yet, although Tim Kaine is going to be uh, around, I think, Monday and Tuesday, but we'll be hearing more from them, and I'm sure we'll be seeing ads of a what, what we're getting deluged with watching, trying to watch the Olympics these days is, is nothing uh, in comparison. Um, we're also getting stuff from the governor's race uh, as well. And, uh, Craig, you looked at a couple of the uh, ads that have shown up um, in the, the McCrory-Cooper battle so far. What's the, the tone of what we're seeing this week? Well, uh, let's see. It started out with, I think there was a Cooper, I mean, a uh, McCrory ad over the weekend or early in the week. It's blurring together now that showed a very calm, very positive, I called it McCrory Goes Positive, I think when I wrote about it. It was, just, it was pointedly not an attack ad, or it was just what a, kind of what a nice, thoughtful uh, guy the governor is. Um, and kind of in a similar vein, uh, Roy Cooper put out a, a big production ad earlier in the week that was called Dad, and it was featuring him and his three daughters, and a lot of home video. It kind of gives you the impression of he's, you know, anybody from the suburbs, any dad in the suburbs of North Carolina kind of guy. And uh, it was very uh, effective. Uh, today, the Republican Governors Association, which has been chipping in money uh, to help out McCrory, uh, went after Cooper, the attorney general, for uh, problems in the state crime lab, which uh, our paper documented a few years ago. Um, the ad was a little misleading in that it said that the uh, things were that Cooper let things get so bad that General Assembly had to take everything, take it away from him. But well, most of this happened before the uh, Cooper was in office, and uh, Cooper did, in fact, initiate an audit to kind of respond to to the issues. Um, and the um, the thing about the uh, them taking the SBI away from him, they did legislature did take the SBI, but left the crime lab. It's still part of his his bailiwick. But uh, you know, an argument can be made that he he still has uh, some issues to answer to in in terms of that. So. Yeah, jumping back to that uh, Cooper ad, do we think we're going to be seeing a lot of Cooper's kids on the campaign trail? That's one thing that uh, asset that McCrory doesn't have because he doesn't have a kid uh, that he can have come out and say, you know, he's, he's this great, great dad and here's some home videos. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I think we've seen a little bit of that now. And there was a, a McCrory ad earlier this year that showed him in his front yard with some kids 
uh, talking about education. I don't, I don't know who the kids were. Yeah, they were throwing a football <laughs> around his front yard. So I don't know if they were neighbors or what. Yeah, but, maybe um, just. But yeah, I, th- I think, suspect that's the case. Uh, it, it, it is a difference between the two of them. How much it matters to people, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how much that uh, pops up as an, an issue in the race um, and, and whether we see more ads uh, like the uh, the dad ad from uh, Roy Cooper. So uh, that's uh, what we're looking at on TV these days. Uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Headliners of the Week. Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Who is your Headliner of the Week? Head, 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 headliner of the Week. Yes, indeed, it is time for Headliners of the Week, the uh, segment where we uh, take our what we think are the biggest newsmakers of the week and argue for which one should be the top of the pile. And uh, we've got three of our panelists here to uh, make their case for who should be the headliner. And we'll start off with uh, Craig Jarvis. Craig, who's your Headliner of the Week? Well, it wasn't a big headline, but a Wake County Superior Court Judge Michael Morgan is presiding over a state voter ID lawsuit. And the Civitas Institute challenged him a few weeks ago, said that he should have recused himself from that case because he's also a candidate for a state Supreme Court. And that gets complicated. Um, Morgan said that he, before he ever filed for candidacy, he checked with the Judicial Standards Commission uh, to make sure it wasn't a problem in some way. Did he need to recuse himself <clears throat> and, and was advised that it was not? So he um, read a statement in a status hearing this week on that issue, or I mean on the trial, and um, and just read a statement at the beginning saying he had no intention of, of um of recusing himself, wouldn't even name the office he w- was running for or that he was running for an office. He just said a, an, an unnamed publication uh, brought up a, an issue with a, a pursuit of mine. So, uh, a pursuit. Oh, pursuit. I just have a pursuit, you know, yeah. running for a statewide office. He didn't want to give undue publicity or be perceived as campaigning from the bench. All right. So Judge Mike Morgan in the hat for headliner of the week, uh, running uh, for the Supreme Court seat um, against uh, Bob Edmonds, who I should uh, mention, uh, I had to give an apology to this week because I I actually don't know my members of the Supreme Court very well. I was convinced that uh, Edmonds had been at a Trump rally, had mentioned that in the story, and it turned out it was not Edmonds at the Trump rally. It was Mark Martin, uh, who is also a justice on the Supreme Court. So uh, it's one of those uh, civics lessons. Uh, We we all need to brush up on our our Supreme Court uh, knowledge. But anyway, jumping uh, next to uh, Lynn Bonner from the News and Observer. Uh, Lynn, who's your Headliner of the Week pick this week? And speaking of coal ash, (laughs) I'm going to uh, pick uh, Dr. Megan Davies, who had a drop-the-mic moment this week uh, when she resigned as uh, state epidemiologist over the uh, whole coal ash issue and the warning letters. Um, She uh, wrote a very strong um, resignation letter that said uh, the department and the administration were misinforming the public. Uh, I think it made made us all uh, wake up. So I'm going to pick Dr. Davies as my headliner. All right, Megan Davies for her uh, mic drop moment in the uh, coal ash saga in the hopper for uh, headliner. Thanks, Lynn, for that. And lastly, we'll go to uh, Will Doran. Will, who's your headliner of the week? Yes, I'm going to stay away from the lofty halls of the judicial and executive branches and instead nominate Twitter trolls in a shameless ploy for victory here. Uh, Colin, you actually wrote a story about Twitter trolls. This is a new strategy for uh, headliner. Pick the headline written by the host. (laughs) Um, And, uh, well, I don't need to tell you, but, uh, you know, 
trolling is, uh, you know, at an all-time high on Twitter, or maybe it's always been at an all-time high. It does um, feel like it's ramped up recently. Yeah, and it might just be 2016 has been a crazy year, but, you know, you've got these politicians who, you know, some would argue should be responsive to, you know, fellow politicians, their constituents, members of the public, etc., but who have gone on uh, blocking sprees rather than, uh, you know, interacting with uh, critics. And, uh, you know, as as journalists, we get a lot of critics and trolls as well. Yeah, I had to block a couple people last night because they were sending me a long string of insults because they didn't like my article. Like, this feels vaguely hypocritical having written this story, but I also don't want to be insulted. So, <laughs> Well, ju- just don't tweet uh, the link out to this podcast and no one will know. Yeah, but. exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that is my headliner of the week. Um, you know, they're around every week, but they're making the headlines this week. Uh, and also our colleague Josh Schaefer uh, wrote a, uh, a related article, too, about... Uh, uh, you know, blocking people on Facebook as well. Yeah, so that was a great not, column about the the degree to which people sort of have to uh, tune out their uh, politically active relatives' uh, rants in, in this election year. So two stories uh, worth reading and then sharing with your Facebook and Twitter followers and hoping you, you don't get what? blocked over maybe, it. Maybe just talk about it in person. I, yeah. I think people are a lot nicer in person I than they are I do find that's online. the case. And certainly, you know, the, the less anonymity that's available, the, the nicer people tend to be. Uh, so Twitter trolls in the hat for headliner, along with uh, Megan Davies, the uh, state epidemiologist, and uh, Judge Mike Morgan, uh, the candidate for Supreme Court, and uh, also uh, active judge in in various things. Uh, well, I've got uh, I have to admit I'm trying to put aside my media bias towards myself here. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to pick Twitter trolls as, as much as I, I really want to because that was the story I was working on we'll a good chunk the of the week. People of the year, so don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> Headliner of the year, Twitter trolls. <laughs> but I'll have to go with, uh, with with Lynn Bonner's pick this week uh, for Megan Davies. It's not every day that you uh, see a, a major uh, figure in state government uh, so very publicly uh, quit their job and, and point to some uh, serious concerns uh, about public health issues. So uh, for, for that particular act, uh, we will make her the headliner of the week this week. And that's all the time we've got for Domecast. Thanks so much for tuning in with us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.